How many of you brought Bibles tonight? Raise your hands. Good thinking. Bible study? Bible. Good. Turn to Psalm 139. Robert Dick Wilson was one of the most brilliant men of his time. He was a Hebrew professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. One of his graduates was the famous pastor, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who later on went on to pastor the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Twelve years after graduation, Barnhouse went back to Princeton to preach in the old Miller Chapel. On that occasion, his former professor, Dr. Wilson, sat in the front row to hear him. Now, I don't know what you would all know about this necessarily, but to preach in front of the guy or guys who instructed you how to do it can be intimidating. But there he was, Barnhouse preached, and afterwards, Robert Dick Wilson came up, extended his hand, and said to Barnhouse, If you come back again, I will not come to hear you preach. I only come once. I am glad that you are a big godder. When my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders, and then I know what their ministry will be. Barnhouse asked him to explain. Dr. Wilson said, Well, some men have a little god, and they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of inspiration and transmission of the Scriptures. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God. I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. You, Donald, have a great God. And he will bless your ministry. Then he paused, smiled, said, God bless you. And walked away. So, are you a big godder? Or are you a little godder? Do you have in your mind's eye a little god that you like to believe in, but he's so small and so insignificant and you're always distressed? Or is he a great, big, unlimited, all-powerful, almighty God? Psalm 139 is David's description of... His big God. David truly was a big Godder. And there is no other writing of David's that brings us out more than Psalm 139. In fact, this psalm really has no equal in the book of Psalms, in any of the songs of the Bible, when it comes to displaying the attributes of God. Alexander McLaren, the Scottish preacher, said, This is the noblest utterance of the psalmist. Charles Spurgeon said, The brightness of this psalm is like unto a sapphire stone that turns the night into day. Psalm 139 also shows both the poetic genius of David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, as well as the depth of relationship that this man had with his God. In fact, I've read through this psalm so many different times and quite a number of times lately just for this study and last week's study. And it was written from the vantage point as if there were only two people in the universe, God and the psalmist. It's a very personal, it's me 
in you. It's this relationship that he was concerned with. But tonight our focus isn't on the psalm or on the psalmist, but it is on the subject. The great, mighty, magnificent, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, omni-righteous God. That's the theme of this psalm. We're going to begin tonight in verse 7. And uh, we covered verses 1 through 6 last week. And let me just give you a structure of it. There are four stanzas of six verses each. Four stanzas, six verses in each one. And each stanza brings out a new revelation of God by David in a personal way. The first one we covered last week is God's omniscience. God knows everything. And there are three left, two of which we're going to cover tonight. But we're going to look at three segments of it tonight, three emphases on it tonight. We're going to look at the presence and the power and the perception of this mighty God. The presence, the power, and the perception of God. By the way, it is not to be looked at, once again, theologically as much as it is personally. True theology should always lead us to worship God. It's not how much we walk away knowing about God, but actually knowing Him. I agree with Philip Yancey who said, God doesn't care so much about being analyzed, mainly He wants to be loved. That's always the true result of a true theological study, is that It shows you the greatness of God, so you go, oh, and you worship before Him and submit to Him. Well, let's look at God's presence, first of all, beginning in verse 7. In a nutshell, David says, this God is everywhere, or omnipresent is the theological term. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell... Behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. So in a nutshell, this is God's presence, His omnipresence. God is everywhere. Now once again, this is either comforting or frightening, depending on how you live. If you live righteously, you go, yeah. If you don't, you go, "Uh uh-oh. That's not necessarily good news. You may live disobediently. You may not want to follow God. You may want to skip church and just go sporadically and not be faithful. You might want to walk out in a sermon when something strikes your fancy that isn't very good. But the truth is, you can't hide from God. You might think you can momentarily, but David says you can't. Jeremiah 23, Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him? declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heaven and the earth, declares the Lord? Which is interesting when I think of Jonah. Because there was a guy, if I remember right, he was a prophet of the Lord who actually thought 
he could escape God's presence. Of all people on earth, he should know better. He was theologically astute. You can't run from God, but he tried to, to, to leave God's presence. I guess he thought God can't get out west where Spain is. God told him to preach to the Ninevites. By the way, if you're a preacher, this is like you're chomping at the bit. You haven't had work for months. Then God says, I've got a crusade for you. It's in Nineveh. He goes the opposite direction. It says, Jonah went to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. What, God can't find Tarshish? But what's interesting, it's as if Jonah does this. Licks his finger, goes outside and goes, okay, the wind's blowing that way. That's east. That's where God wants me to go, 500 miles to the east. And so what does he do? Does a complete about face and tries to go 2,000 miles directly west toward Gibraltar to flee from the presence of the Lord, a prophet. I had a dog like this once. <laughs> he was a Springer Spaniel. Either he was really dumb or he was smart and obstinate. When I tell him to come, he would go. That was Jonah. Jonah, come. <clears throat> Jonah, go that way. <clears throat> One time I had my dog out in the front yard and I saw a car come and I didn't want the dog to get hit. So the dog was running toward the car the car put on the brakes. I said, Toby, stop. Toby ran into the car. Not the car into the dog. I have a dog that runs into cars. <laughs> I thought you better take your cars on leashes when my dog's out. <laughs> but if, however, you trust in the Lord, He is your Savior. He is your Master. You do love Him like David. Then this is a great promise. Jesus said, I am with you, or lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What a great promise. I heard of a minister who got on an airplane and sitting next to him was a woman with her Bible open and she was praying fervently. As the plane taxied out toward the runway, she started praying more fervently, getting real sweaty, tense. As the plane started taking off and gaining altitude, she gripped sides of the seats, sweating profusely, and the minister knew... She's a Christian. So he said, hey, relax. Jesus said, I am with you always. He did not say that. She bounced back. He said, lo, I am with you always. <laughs> I think David's point is whether you're low in a valley or high in space, the Lord is with you. And this truth of God's omnipresence ought to bring great comfort if you're living right before Him. You can't escape Him. A little girl named Nora wrote a letter to God. I read it. It said, Dear God, I'm not alone anymore since I found out about You. And David is saying, Lord, I, I'm not alone anymore since I know who You are. You are everywhere present. Isaiah 43, verse 2 this is a promise for you. When you go through the deep waters in great trouble, God says, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. 
If you are a big godder, then you have this awareness of God's omnipresence. If you are a little godder, then you live in fear and anxiety probably most all the time. Notice verse 8 for just a moment. David basically points out three things about the omnipresence of God. First of all, death doesn't hide us from him. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. Now that makes sense. You go to heaven, that's where God lives. That's what most of us grew up thinking. But look at this. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. So death doesn't hide us. By the way, in verse 8, the word hell is sheol. It means the grave. Whether I go up or down... I'm going to find God somewhere in there. God is present on both sides of eternity. On this side, he promises to be with us to the end of the age. As soon as death occurs, which is a threshold, which ushers us into eternity, God is there as well. Now, this is good news for a Christian. Bad news if you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, it's great. Because death is a graduation. It's a promotion. It's an upgrade. He died. No, he didn't. He moved. He upgraded in an eternal sense. Paul said, for the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, even if you are an unbeliever at death, you will not be rid of God. Oh, it's just beginning. That's where you really encounter God. The Bible says it's appointed unto every man once to die, and after this what? The judgment. Think for just a moment as an example of Adolf Hitler. Hated Jews. Killed them, six million of them. And killed Christians persecuting churches who harbored and kept Jews safe during the Holocaust. Now imagine Hitler dying, crossing the threshold into eternity, coming face to face with Jesus Christ, a Jew, and the judge of his eternal fate. Death doesn't separate you from God. I read some interesting things this week. Altamont, who was an agnostic writer in the 1800s, when he was dying, said this to God, Thou blasphemed and indulgent God, hell is a refuge if it hides me from thy frown. Imagine that. Even at death, he's so aware of God. Voltaire, I've mentioned him on many occasions, tried his whole life to get rid of God. Of Christ, he said publicly, curse the wretch. But when he died, Voltaire cried out all night. One of the things he said is, I'll give you half of what I'm worth for six months of life, like God would care. And then I shall go to hell, and you shall go with me, O Christ, O Jesus Christ. Well, in one sense he was right. You couldn't ever get rid of God in this life or in the next if I go to heaven, if I make my bed in the grave in hell, behold, you are there. Second, David says the distance can't hide us from God. Look at verse 9. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. That's a poetic description meaning distance, especially going west into the Mediterranean Sea where it looks like it just went forever. He's saying, if I take the wings of the morning and go to the Mediterranean Sea, way out in the sea, you're there. You know, I've often wondered, speaking of Jonah, if when he got on that boat, the name of that boat wasn't coincidentally wings of the morning. 
It would be interesting if it were. And maybe he saw that and went, oh no, this is not going to be a good trip. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there you are. I've always liked the story of the Russian cosmonaut who went into space and he came back. He was an atheist and spoke to his atheistic colleagues as well as some Americans who were present. And he says, I was in outer space. I looked around. I did not see God. I looked everywhere in space. I did not see God. I looked toward the moon. I did not see God. There is no God. One of the Americans who was in the crowd said to his buddy, if he had gotten out of his spacesuit, he would have seen God. <laughs> You know, we sometimes make the mistake that God is near or far when it comes to distance. People make pilgrimages to Mecca, pilgrimages to Rome, pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Like they're going to find God. We're, we're closer. Now, the worship of the Jews was geocentric. They thought that the presence of God dwelled in the temple area. Even today, you want to get close to God, go pray at the temple wall. The Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, that's where the presence of God will be stronger than anywhere in the world. And that's why they kid you when you go there. You can pray anywhere on earth, they say, but here it's a local call. <laughs> David's point is that it's always a local call. You can't get away from, you can't judge nearness or, di- or, or farness by physical distance. We sometimes make that mistake. I think Christians sometimes make that mistake. Uh, I remember when we moved from the Lakes Apartments into our first building, and I had people saying, Oh, I miss the presence of God at the Lakes Apartment. Oh, get a life. (laughs) And then when we moved here, Oh, I remember the presence of God at Snow Heights. It's funny to watch people when they can't get their regular seat on Saturday night or Sunday morning. Hey, I sit there. That's where God speaks to me. (laughs) Let's get over the nearness or farness of a place or a sentimental thing. Solomon was right. After he made the temple, he said, Even heaven and the heavens of heavens can't contain you, much less this house which I have built. Distance can't hide us from God. The only distance that will separate us from God is sin. And you can be at the altar of God and have sin in your heart and the Lord won't hear you. David said, if I regard sin in my heart, the Lord won't hear me. That's the only distance is in terms of our behavior, our heart before Him, our trust or lack thereof. Now look at verse 11. There's a third thing he says about it, and that is darkness can't hide us from God. This is interesting. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Now, who in their right mind would think God can't see in the dark? I don't know. There's a lot of superstitious people running around. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike unto you. I have always found it interesting that most bars and nightclubs are dark. It's by design. It's to obscure one's features. To, in a sense, hide. I can be there, but I can also hide. It's more comfortable. Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. 
Saul, the first king of Israel, went to the witch of Endor. Saul disguised himself, the Bible says, and went at night. God met him. Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, the Bible says. He went out immediately, and it was night. But God was there. I read of a Christian leader who wanted to see a risque act at a local theater. So he called the manager and he said, Are there any side doors to the theater? I want to come. I want to observe. I want to see. But I don't want anybody to know that I'm there. And the manager said to him, recognizing him, My dear sir, the theater has no doors that God cannot see. But I think it's more than a warning. I think it truly is for those who love and trust the Lord a comfort. The dark and the light, both alike, both alike to God. Why are people afraid of the dark? Why are people afraid of the dark? Well, in the dark, you really have no control. You can't see where you're going. You can't perceive if something's coming at you, if you're going to run into a wall. And so you have a loss of control. You're disoriented. Where am I going? What's going to happen to me? And then our mind takes over. We see things that aren't there. Years ago, the trains that went across country had no overhead lights in the cars. So when they went through a tunnel, it was pitch black. But did everybody freak out? No, they didn't care. Why? The conductor's still up front, still on the tracks. It'll come out of the tunnel. Well, so life is with God. God's still the conductor. He still has your life on his track. He's still sovereign. He's still on the throne. He's in control. If you're going through a dark period, you can relax because God is in charge. He promised that he would be. In fact, I would say that God allowed you to go through the dark so that he would hide what he's doing from you. It'll be a surprise when you see it. Watch this. Oh, but I can't see. Oh, but this... Just hold on. Where do you see what I'm going to do? You're going to love this. And then, boom, you're out in the light. Wow. Look what you made me into. Look at the character I've developed. You know, the, the best European perfumes come from flowers that are grown high up on the Balkan Mountains over in Serbia and the Black Sea area. They say that they harvest these flowers in the darkest part of the night, between 12 midnight and 2 a.m. It's a very short time where they'll cut these flowers, take them back, and mix them up for perfume. That's because they say that scientific tests prove that the greatest aroma is during the darkest part of the night. In fact, the report that I read said that 40% of this aroma will disappear in the light of the day. I read that and I immediately thought of this text, 2 Corinthians 2.15. Our lives are a fragrance presented by Christ to God. The darkness and the light, oh, they're different to you and I, but not to God. In fact, he hides it from you so that he might not show you the surprise. If you're still trying to hide something from God, you're a little godder. A big godder isn't trying to hide from God. And a big godder would say in times of darkness, I can't see, but I'm glad you're still the conductor of this train. So go for it. P.S. on a uh, theological note here before we move on. The ancient peoples did not believe in this teaching of omnipresence. 
the, the basic ideology thousands of years ago was called henotheism. Henotheism was the idea that there are several gods that sort of get along with each other, but they have distinct precincts and borders. There's gods over the valleys, gods over the rivers, gods over the sun, that's Baal. God over the meadow, God over this nation, God over that nation. And so that's what Elijah makes fun of them about on Mount Carmel. Do you remember? He chides them because they're calling out on their gods, especially Baal, the sun god. They didn't believe in omnipresence. And Elijah said at about noontime, he was mocking them, you have to shout louder. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Or maybe he's relieving himself. Or maybe he's away on a trip. Or he's asleep and you need to wake him up. I like his style. Mock them. Because his God was omnipresent, everywhere present. The second thing we want to look at now is God's power. That takes us to verse 13. God's power. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they were all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there was none of them. That's God's power. Verses 1 through 6, he says that God knows everything. He's omniscient. What we just read beginning in verse 7 is that God is everywhere present. He's omnipresent. Here, God is almighty. He is, he is omnipotent. He can do anything. Here's David's point. Your God isn't a weakling. He operates at full power. Job said, I know you can do everything, that no purpose of yours can be restrained. There is no resisting your might. There is no purpose you cannot carry out. There's a suffering man saying that about his God. So God operates at full power. He can do anything. He can take a 99-year-old Abraham and make him a dad. He can make a 90-year-old woman named Sarah make her a mom. Now when God had mentioned that, in Genesis 18, she laughed within herself. And God said, why'd you laugh? I didn't laugh. Yeah, you did. I heard you. Omnipresent, remember? Omniscient, remember? And then he said, Is there anything too hard for the Lord? God could open up a body of water and bring millions of people across on dry land and drown the Egyptian army. For the life of me, I, I read volumes of books that talk about how, well, that really wasn't a miracle. It just happened a strong wind was blowing in the Sea of Reeds and it let them wade across up to their knees and get over. No big deal. You still have to explain the miracle of drowning the entire Egyptian army in about 18 inches of water. Either way, it was miraculous. God could take a slave nation and make them a world power. That's mighty. That's omnipotent. Your God is powerful. Now, skeptics, and I, maybe you've been asked this question, I have. Well, 
can God make a rock so big that even he couldn't lift? Have you ever had people ask you that question? It's an age-old question. It's a trick question. It's a lame question. Can God make a rock so big that even he couldn't lift? Well, actually, there are things God can't do. Not because he is unable or lacks power, but it's because it's contrary to his nature. Number one, God can't lie. Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. It's contrary to his nature. Number two, God can't associate with sin. Habakkuk 1.13, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and you cannot look on wickedness. Number three, God can't be unfaithful. Isn't that good to know? God can't be unfaithful. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because God cannot deny himself. So when we say that God is omnipotent, we mean God can do anything he pleases that is in harmony with his nature. Anything he pleases that is in harmony with his nature. And there are certain things God can't do by virtue of the fact that it contradicts his nature. But what interests me here is David's example of God's all-powerful nature. He doesn't reach up into the heavens and talk about supernovas and galaxies like he does in Psalm 8. He talks about the formation of a human being in the womb of a mother. Isn't that interesting? He's going to say, I'm going to talk about God's power to do anything, and I'm going to look in a womb to do it. Why? Two reasons. Man is God's highest crowning creation. We are emagio dei, in the image of God. Number two, because it's more personal to David. It's more personal to say, you formed me, rather than, let's look at the heavens. David, remember, is writing this from a personal vantage point. Look at it. Verse 15, he says, My frame was not hidden from you. That's suggestive of the bone structure, the skeletal structure of the human being, of a developing child. He says, I was skillfully wrought, means embroidered, literally, or knit together, which suggests the formation of veins and arteries in the womb and of that developing fetus. Verse 16, my substance, he says, yet unformed. I looked that up. It means rolled, folded, or scrunched together. I think it speaks of the embryo where the body parts are sort of just all pushed together and scrunched, rolled up before there's distinction and proportion. That God takes note of that. It's amazing that we all start out as a speck as was written in our poem tonight in the baby dedication. Just a little speck. But that God programs with the DNA how every cell will function from conception till death. So you go from a zygote to an embryo, from an embryo to a fetus, to 60 trillion cells with an incredible capacity, 100,000 miles of nerve fiber, 60,000 miles of blood vessels, 250 bones plus sinews, joints, ligaments, muscles, etc. Fearfully and wonderfully made. I find it interesting and I want to draw a point and a conclusion. The Bible acknowledges that personhood begins at conception. You cannot read what we just read and think, well, I can choose whatever I want to do with that little thing in my body until it's ready to be born. After all, I'm pro-choice. Well, you were pro-choice 
at the time of conception. Once that child is in your womb, think of this child's ability to survive. Your choice just ended. God shows that personhood, humanity, begins at the time of gestation. The time of conception. It's a tragedy that the fetus in our culture is now regarded as a nuisance. Sort of like a ruptured appendix. Since 1973, Supreme Court, Roe versus Wade decision, 39 million. Let that sink in. 39 million babies have been slaughtered. You know what that means? That's more than the entire population of the country of Canada, which is just over 31 million. Shame on America for worshiping convenience rather than God. Uh, A class, a teacher in a class wanted to show the faultiness of human reasoning in this issue, and he, he, he gave out a a scenario to the kids and wanted them to make a decision, a moral decision. And so he said, how would you advise a mother who is pregnant with her fifth child based on the following information? Her husband has syphilis. He has had it for some time. She has tuberculosis. The first child was born blind. The second child died. The third child was born deaf. The fourth child had tuberculosis. The mothering is, mother is considering an abortion. How would you advise her? Now, this was not just hypothetical. It was an actual historical case. Most of the students agreed that she should have the abortion. The teacher said, congratulations, you've just killed the greatest composer ever, Ludwig von Beethoven. That was his family history. What right do we have to tamper with God's special creation? How arrogant can we be Only little godders could dare do that. Only big godders would consider that God has made the crowning creation a human being. And let me add to that, if this sin is in your past, you also serve a great God who can extend great forgiveness and give you a new start, a clean slate, and raise that value of life in your mind and for the rest of your life. Well, I want to close where we sort of camped last week. I want to look at just the next couple of verses, and we'll close with that and save the rest for the next time. And this is God's perception. God's presence, God's power, and now God's perception. Look again at these verses. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God? How great is the sum of them? If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Now, we read that last week, but I just want to end here. God's presence, God's power, but here's God's perception. This is what God thinks of me. God is concerned. And, and, you know, here's David. His emphasis here isn't his lofty thoughts of a great God as much as God's condescending thoughts of little old me. What is man, David asked in Psalm 8, that you are mindful of him? You who are omnipotent, omnipresent, Omniscient, omni-righteous, you think about me this much. What a staggering truth. I love the way Paul worded it in Galatians 4. He says, now that you have known God, or rather are known by God, great twist of the phrase, we boast, I know God, so what? He knows you, 
and still loves you. God has condescended to think of you, to care about you. Ever heard someone say, I've been thinking about you lately. You've been on my heart. I've been praying for you. That's what God always says about you. If I count your thoughts, they're more in number than the sand we looked at last week. I love what God says about Jerusalem in the book of Jeremiah. He says, Jerusalem, your walls are always before my vision, and I have inscribed your name on the palms of my hands. You remember doing that in school when you were growing up and there's a girl you liked or a guy you liked and you'd write their name on the hand, on the tennis shoe, on the book, everywhere. God is saying, I love you so much that in a romantic touch, I write your name on the palm of my hand. That's how much I love you. That's how much I'm concerned about you on a personal level. Now, I want you to walk away with this tonight. The loftiness of God, but the concern of lofty God for little old you. Most of us believe God loves us. We believe that. Okay, God loves me. He's God. He's supposed to love me. He's love. But at the same time, there's this little part of our minds that say, but does he really like me? Okay, he loves me. He's God. But does he like me? Listen to what God said in Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of good, not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. He said that to a sinning nation. To a nation who had sinned so much he had to take them into a foreign land, a captivity. And they were at that moment going, Okay, you love me, but you don't like me. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, not of evil, but of good. So this is where David pauses before he finishes the psalm. The obeisance of God, in a sense. The condescension of God. It's great that he's so lofty, but it's even greater that this lofty, omniscient, omnipotent, almighty, all-powerful, God thinks about me. Have you ever heard of a guillemot? That's a bird up in the Arctic. Up in the north country along the coast, the guillemot lives and makes its nest in the craggy high rocks of the northern coast. When mother guillemots hatch their eggs, they all come together, hundreds of females, and because they're in such cramped, tight little spaces, they lay their tiny little pear-shaped eggs, thousands of them, in a single row, all next to each other. If you ever see footage of this and you look at them, you will swear every single egg looks identical. No one could tell them apart. Studies have shown that you can remove an egg and place it even a great distance away and the mother to whom that egg belongs will find it. Now, just think, if a bird brain creature can be programmed by Almighty God to figure that out, then can't all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God be concerned enough about your life that when you're going through the tunnel that you can just relax a little bit, go along for the ride, and see what sweet fragrance He has waiting on the other end. We'll go through the next part of it next week. We'll look at the holiness of God, the omni-righteousness of God. But I love what an eight-year-old wrote about God. He 
He said, God, if anything happens to you, we're sunk. Can you imagine a little eight-year-old being worried about that? Hope you're okay, God. Anything happens, we're all sunk. He's right. We are all sunk. But don't be a little godder. Be a big godder. Let your view of God be so magnificent that He can do anything that is in accordance with His character and nature. Heavenly Father, thank You that You, through David, as well as other portions of Scripture, have revealed who You really are. You know everything. You are everywhere. You can do anything. And Your perception is that You care about us. Your thoughts toward us could be summed up by you've been on my heart lately. I've been thinking a lot about you. When we couple that with the rest of your attributes, we are humbled and we can only be driven one place on our knees to worship before a great God. Help us in this life not to make so much of ourselves make a lot of you that we might truly be big daughters. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name.